0: Welcome to Chris Judd's Masters of the Market, a podcast giving everyday investors access to some of the best and brightest minds in the Australian investing landscape. Today's episode is brought to you by Think Markets, the trading platform where you can trade Forex, shares, CFDs, indices, and commodities. Today on the show, I'm joined by Ed Peter from Duxton Asset Management. Ed's got exposure to broadacre farms, water rights and other agricultural products, making his point of view slightly different to the other fund managers I've been lucky enough to catch up with. I love listening to Ed's view on inflation, AI and the coming risks that he sees facing the economy. Hope you enjoyed my catch up as much as I did. Ed Peter, thanks for uh, joining me on Masters of the Market. Uh, Really appreciate you taking the time to, to have a chat. With pleasure. So I thought we'd start with um, Ducks and Asset Management, which you're group chairman of, uh, and just what the overall philosophy is of that.
1: Um, We're a very funny little company uh, on the basis that we can invest in pretty much anything we want. And we're very late in the cycle. And being very late in the cycle, you have to look at your risks and rewards. And... I've had the pleasure of uh, speaking uh, with uh, people who are far more famous than I am, um, like Niall Ferguson. And last time I, uh, or when I was at the the Davos thing uh, last year, and I had the opportunity to speak uh, with Niall, and I shot my mouth off and said um, that one of the reasons I was doing the things I was doing was because interest rates were at levels that hadn't been seen since Jesus Christ walked this planet. Niall, in front of 400 people, uh, goes, No, 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 you're absolutely wrong. And you have to understand, Niall's one of my heroes. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, Oh, fuck. <laughs> Excuse my language. <laughs> no, that's uh, fine. Uh, you know, uh, ah! I'm, you know, he goes, Since we've had economic history, interest rates have not been this low. So pretty much everything we do is with a look to the future yeah. and saying what could happen what's likely to happen and how do we want to be positioned for what we think are likely outcomes yeah now that first comment interest rates are exceptionally low right now is behind a lot or drives a lot of our forward thinking there's a whole bunch of other things yeah. but we'll stay with that just because we only have 40 minutes today, yeah uh, and uh, there's no way you want to listen to me rabbit on about everything else it's probably the single most important thing that I can mention and then make a lot of sense everything else that we're doing. Yeah. So with interest rates where they are, and you then say, what happens if they change? What happens if they go up a tiny bit? Now, our current view is there's more risk of interest rates falling a tiny bit than going up Yeah. in the short term, short term being the next 12 months. The flip side of that is if interest rates move up, then the biggest asset class on the planet, which is the bond market, has a lot of problems. Yeah. Okay? So I don't want to put my money there. Yeah. The next biggest asset class on the planet is residential real estate. It sits at about $90 trillion U.S. dollars. If interest rates move up or your cost of money goes up, your mortgage rate goes up. Yeah your house price goes down. There's no and, if, or but. Yeah. So the second largest asset class in the world looks pretty awful. Now, one thing that most people have no clue about, because they just haven't looked at history, is what happens to equities when interest rates go up. I met my wife in 1991. Yeah. She was a good Aussie girl. She was doing her walkabout around the world. And in our conversations... She mentioned that she was getting 17.6%. Actually, mm. probably said 17, but it was 17.6% on her savings account. Now, I've got the little certificate now on the wall of my office, so I look at it every day Yeah. if I ever forget that because that drove a lot of other things that were happening in the market and will drive, if we have interest rates move against us, the same things. So at that point in time, equities traded on a forward PE in Australia of about 2.7 times. I'm going to repeat myself, 2.7 times. If you look at the S&P 500, US interest rates peaked the year before, and the forward-looking PE at that point in time was about 4.5 times. So the downside, if rates move against us, is off the charts. Rough back-of-the-envelope numbers, if you look at the ASX 200, and say, guys, current events. What happens if we go to our long-term cost of capital? What proportion of the ASX 200 exists? Well, currently, with the amount of debt that's there, you'd lose about 60% of it. So these things start getting very scary, and people don't think about these things. Yeah, I've spoken to most of the, the top fund managers in town, and you ask them the question, but they've been living 30 years mm of gently declining, sawtooth, up and downs, but declining in broad sense, interest rate environment. 1991 is a halfway point for our market in a cycle. And we're near the little bottoms. We can go a little bit lower, but if that starts moving against us, and there's a whole bunch of indicators that are saying inflation is moving against us. If you look at the political noises we're hearing right now, in the U.S., there's not one major contender for the Democratic Party that is not talking about taking from the rich, giving to the mm-hmm. poor, and increasing the bottom-end wage. If you take a look around the world and look at emerging markets, I can't find a market where we're seeing wage deflation. The only place I see wage deflation is in the, of the 7.4 billion people on this planet is in the 280. White collar, middle class, people like you and I, where AI is beginning to eat our pie. Mm. But pretty much the rest of the place, we're seeing inflation on wages. That, when you combine it with a a cyclical low in energy costs, metals and mining, and soft commodities, means that we've got, in my belief, more upside than downside risk. Not tomorrow, not in the next 12 months, but sometimes the next two or three years. Now... We know bonds are pretty scary. We know residential real estate is pretty scary. We know that equities are pretty scary if rates start moving against us. Let's think about commercial real estate, which, if you take a look at the top families in Australia, roughly half have created their wealth in the last 30 years in commercial real estate. That's the best-performing asset class when rates come down, worse when they go up. So that's a sort of scary place. The world's really ugly then. Mm. And, you know, let's go find rock and crawl under it and just stay there if that's the view. But I was listening to, to um, uh, Peter Cooper speaking earlier on today, uh, a great investor, and as he points out, there's always opportunities. So let's take a look and say, where are our opportunities? And we'll, we'll look in the listed market for things that did well as my interest rates went up, As my inflation started biting last time, so let's take a look back towards 1991 and look and see what companies were doing well. Well, at that point in time, three broad sectors did well: energy, metals and mining, and agriculture. All of them benefited from the fact that they could put through price increases because they're raw commodities in the bulk end of the market that self-adjust with inflation. There's a couple of little other pockets, but we're not going to talk about that today, because mm. again, we don't have that much time. But now let's go back to those three things, and I'm a very simple person. And in energy, while there's huge changes around renewables, we've had a huge underinvestment, massive underinvestment in oil and gas. And while we love renewables, it ain't going to happen overnight. Mm. So let's go back to that for two secs. Well, we know we're gonna have some kind of squeeze at some point in time, because we haven't done any exploration, we've done no development of new fields. I can't tell you when. And while I'll benefit by having a position in that, my problem with that is once I pump it, it's gone. Same thing Mm -hmm. as metals and mining. Metals and mining, will run like a banshee. Anybody who doesn't think that is missing the big picture. And let's take a quick look at China, which everybody's really scared about. China said a couple of simple things. One, we've got a One Belt Initiative, where we're going to, as part of that, in the next five years, create one Europe of new track and trains. Europe took 140 years to build their network. China's gonna do one new Europe in five. There's gonna be a lot of steel, a lot of copper involved in that. I think the guys who are in metals and mining are do just fine. When we then overlay that with what's happening in copper, and think, China has come out and said by 2025, 20% of all our vehicles are gonna be electric. Mm. Now, my wife has a Tesla. And in her Tesla, there's I'm going to now do pounds because I got the figure in pounds and not in kilos, so I apologize. 370 kilos of copper in my car, and I'll use my, my Range Rover Discovery, simple car. I got 17 kilos of copper. If you do some quick maths on what the auto market is anticipated to look like for China, and say what would twenty percent of those cars look like? You're going to come up with needing to find another eight million tons of copper per year on an ongoing basis. That's interesting. Mm. I quite like that. That's 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 a fun fun number, especially since that's about fifteen percent more copper than we're producing now. Again, same thing as oil and gas. Once we Dig it out, it's gone, which is why we're doing ag. Ag, again, we're at systemically low pricing for the commodities. If you take the soft commodities as a bucket, the 73 major commodities that we eat and drink, inflation adjusted, we're on all-time lows. Mm. That's a beautiful place to start. That's a lovely place to start because guess what? If I can make money at the all-time low, and my commodity moves in my direction, all of a sudden it's huge free cash flow. It's a beautiful thing. And I'll illustrate this by talking about citrus in a few seconds, but I'm going to go back to just the overall frame first. For us right now, the play is being real assets that adjust with inflation, where we can keep debt, even though money is very cheap right now, where we can keep debt to a minimum unless we can lock in really long-term debt. So that if I do get inflation, my long-term debt gets eroded. So for us, we've got a big chunk of the Aussie wine industry. We've got tea in India. We've got some farms in Africa. We've got um, a good chunk of the dairy industry down here. I believe we're the biggest, or if not, we're certainly top three. We've got, um, from memory, uh, 25% of South Australia's apples. Uh, I think that's about 4% of the countries, but might be wrong with that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for us, we're putting our money where our mouth is. You asked, about water earlier on yeah. and from my side water is a clear vector to play the overall ag space so while we, we are we are literally uh, one of the top five irrigators in this country if not the biggest by ourselves when you take a look at all our different holdings and put it together um, we'd certainly be in the top five trying I'm, try- I'm at a little bit of a lost figure of somebody bigger Corrigan's got- Corrigan's behind a water mob. Is that right? Yep, he might. Well, he's got more water than we do, but I'm not sure he's using it all. I think that. Yeah, but, don't know. Yeah. Uh, so let's man. go.
0: Let's go there then. Let's go through the ducks water, which you're also the chairman yep. of. For those of us like myself who aren't experts in that field, in two, up until 2006, the water rights were stapled to the land rights. Is that right? Um, basically, it was yes. And correct. then they, in 2006, they were effectively. Unstapled, for want of a better word. What's happened to the the water market since that time? So
1: two things happened. One is is that uh, a bunch of people turned around and said, hmm, we don't really need this, and if I can get an economic value for it, let's get that money for it. Yeah. And then the second thing is, is that the government reduced the number of rights because the government, being exceptionally fair, came out and said, do you know what? We've probably allocated to the farmers more water rights than the murray darling basins systemically can handle so we by being extremely fair and buying them back and holding them for the environment reduced what was at that point in time uh, out in the market so the the amount of water rights has fallen by 31 percent yeah now back in the day when they were handed out a lot of people got the right to use the water, and really didn't use it. Yeah, because no one cared because it was free. It was there. Yeah. It was a, a, and when you start assigning a value, yeah, all of a sudden people start valuing it and start using it. And we've then had a second move, which is to higher and greater use of that water for economic value. Yeah. So the guy who's using his meg or gal, who's using their mega water for. Uh, I don't want to single out a crop and make anybody feel bad let's say rice for instance let's say rice for instance fair enough and had a return by using one meg of water yeah of 10 aussie dollars i'm making this up yeah. uh, as it goes versus somebody in almonds who has an economic value for the same meg of water of about three thousand dollars it's very much in the almond guys Interest to pick up as much water as he can yeah. or she can,
0: and, and that's a logical progression, isn't it? The almond guys mm. can afford to pay a higher price. That price keeps going up until the rice growers can't afford to pay
1: it. Um, I, I I find a, a very interesting stat. We've we've planted in this country, uh, circa forty five thousand hectares of almonds, of which thirty thousand is now producing uh, yep. almonds. Um, the Victorian Water Minister pointed out recently uh, publicly um, that when those almonds, the last bit, the 15,000 aren't yet mature, mature, plus the declared plantings for this year mature, in a drought year, the almond industry by itself will need 100% of the water in the Murray-Darling Basin. Now, they're very, 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 very profitable, so they will squeeze out other farmers. It's the same thing as, as the guys who are growing olives. Yeah they can afford to pay more than the guys who are growing rice. Yeah. The guys who are growing cotton can afford a little bit more than the rice. And there's a hierarchy. And what we'll see is the water will move to the highest and best use in that hierarchy. And it's going to end up, I believe, at current pricing for and commodities, very much in high-value permanent crops, vineyards, almonds, hazelnuts, walnuts, pecans, where Australia has a competitive advantage in terms of climate. yeah, And even at that very high water price, if it ever gets up to those prices for our temporary rights, we can make an economic return.
0: And so seeing how you see that future of the Murray-Darling Basin, some people look at Australia and say it should be the food bowl of Asia. Mm. And I've heard other people say it should more be the premium delicatessen of Asia, if you like, because we're a relatively high-cost country with high-cost land and energy and labor.
1: Where do you see us in that landscape going forward? So I think that in the Murray-Darling, as a space, you're going to see us moving towards – I think we're going to, that higher price of water is going to lead us to be ever more water efficient Yeah, because it's a valuable resource. So I think that's going to be hugely good. If you go to Israel and look at some of the technologies, they've – what to bear with almost no water and then the impact of that it's been phenomenal yeah. so if we use our water wisely we can move from being a delicatessen to being the grocery store yeah maybe not the supermarket but you know yeah on the Murray-Darling Basin but be under no illusions Australia's got lots of water it's just where we don't have a lot of people yeah so what about Northern Territory Let's think about what could be done up there on relatively less expensive land and with unbelievably huge amounts of water or northern Queensland. Or let's move some of the, our water around. Chinese are building 1,000-kilometer-long pipes to move water because it's valuable because they've yeah. got circa 15% of the world population, 16 and a little bit less than eight percent of the fresh water.
0: So, and is it the same as electricity? Where one of the issues with moving electricity large distances is you lose so much of it.
1: Is the evaporation around water and transport the energy significant, or it depends on how you transport it. Yeah, whether it's in a closed pipe or in in a uh, in canals and diking yeah. systems. The flip side of that, or down river beds. Yeah. Um. The flip side of that is is um. It's if you're going to pipe it, you also have an energy cost. So you have to think about both aspects, and you have to do your add up uh, of what you want. But there's large tracts of our this country, which are totally able to be farmed and are used maybe for pastoral assets that we could use for cotton that the world needs, the, uh, the, the, the grains, the, the, the uh, permanent crops. So cotton, cotton doesn't like
0: humidity, is that right? Mm. And hence why even though it uses a lot of water, it's sort of relevant to grow that in Australia potentially as opposed to rice, yep. which just is probably a more natural fit Elsewhere, is Mm
1: -hmm. that fair? Yes, but we could grow rice easily in the Northern Territory. Gotcha. We could grow cotton in the Northern Territory. We don't have the infrastructure there. Yeah. But the quality of the land is certainly there. We're using it for cattle instead, but it's not like it's not being farmed. Yeah. So it's best use of land, and I think that as we put pressure on the Murray Darling, you're going to see that move north. From our side, this is, and we see that as as a long-term opportunity. so from our side we're trying to think about where the future sits yeah we're investing in places where we see big free cash flow at very low commodity prices where if the commodity price starts moving in our direction that we then benefit from that so from our side in terms of the permanent crops whether it's viticulture or apples as a permanent crop nuts at l yeah that's one way of expressing the water then there's the absolute way which is to own the water rights and then work with farmers to provide everybody from the very small farmer to the very large farmer with visibility around their allocations. If, if you think about it, with many of these permanent crops, the cost of your land planting and getting your, tr- your, your plants ready is less than the value of the water in the current, at current pricing. So to be able to rent that and not have it on your balance sheet and focus on all the other bits i.e. getting the use of the water, can be a great boon for Australia's farmers. And that's one of the, the things we're doing with Ducks and Water is, is making sure that, that we can get the water out to the farmers who don't have the balance sheet to do it. We're working very much for the small farmer, the mid-sized farmer, who doesn't have the balance sheet, to own the water. And, and with the almonds. The olive, uh, the olive trees we planted in such huge amounts uh, across the place, the, the the walnuts, the hazelnuts, there's going to be a fight for that water. So those balance sheets of hmm. the ma's and pa's need somebody to say, okay, we'll wear the balance sheet, you rent it from us.
0: And so what are the major advantages that the corporate farmers have over those
1: mum and pa's? Um, critical mass uh, so they tend to miles and piles tend to have very much uh, their own labor as their labor cost yeah so uh, they tend to have an advantage on labor but then on their purchasing their ability to roll out technology yeah. their ability to to plan large scale and/ or have a deep balance sheet it's very difficult for the for miles and piles.
0: next week on the podcast we've got Rob Frost from OC funds management. I mean there's always technology always causes disruption yeah. in the job market I mean if you look back on history and you think about you know when the steam engine came in or the Industrial Revolution displaced a lot of jobs everyone was like oh we're gonna, gonna be mass unemployment but what happens is um, you know the computer revolution yeah. people are like "Oh, it's gonna displace all these workers but um, ultimately it creates productivity um, cost-cutting Um, people have higher incomes they spend the income creates more demand um, more jobs created so i I think you know the coming age of ai will cause um, dislocation will cause job losses and some industries will benefit but there's going to be huge job creation coming out of it don't forget to subscribe to us on itunes and leave a comment or wherever else you get your podcasts from And what technology do you see as coming down the pipe? You mentioned Israel before as being a leader there. What sort of stuff
1: are you seeing? What does the future of farming look like? Um, It's going to be everything from uh, genetics, plants that can withstand drought, don't give you a crop until they get the water, but can live till they get the water, through to uh, um, uh, crops that harvest more of the available sunlight, uh, by moving up to gene uh, sequencing. So uh, corn can do more with less sunlight than, for example, wheat plant can. Yeah. So uh, it's just the way they f- the, the two plants photosynthesize uh, so that the corn gets more from the same amount of energy can produce more growth. Yeah. So changes in genetics, changes in, in, um, uh, uh, in the plant biology itself, then I think the really big sleeper for the industry is going to be robotics. Yeah. Robotics will change everything. It's not necessarily going to be good for labor because if we can have a robot that comes and picks apples and does it when it's best, which is after midnight because it's cooler, um, doesn't get tired so there's no thumbprint or bruising of the apple. As the thumb gets tired, you actually tend to put more pressure on as you're picking. So with a machine, you won't get tired, so you don't have to do the pressure. You can use photonics, so in the low-light environment, say, that apple's ready, that apple's not. You can pick to size, so all of a sudden, you can take a lot of human labor out of uh, the mix and bring down costs, improve your product. Now, it doesn't take too many steps forward with current technology to see – a moment in time where we've got a small robot maybe the size of my telephone walking through a field and saying ah that bug I don't like and with a blast of compressed air blows its little head off oh that bug I like so I'm going to leave it there that's a weed so I'm going to snip it either by using a quick flash of a laser to just collapse the cells at one level or maybe mechanically clipping it Mm. but all of a sudden then my little bug who has his head knocked off becomes fertilizer. That weed becomes fertilizer. And if another one comes, as we do our next pass, it gets cut too. So it's not competing. All of a sudden, I can go organic by using robotics, if you understand yeah. the impact of that. yeah. So that gives me a, a bionome where I can have much more bacteria. I don't have to have pesticides. I don't have to have herbicides. And I can be a much more natural farmer because... I've got somebody who's out there literally snipping every single weed yeah. and getting rid of every bug. So my produce looks beautiful. My ground doesn't fill with chemicals. And, uh, hey, let's put a solar cell in the back of a little, little robot. And all of a sudden, it's a very interesting environment we're in. So that's not that
0: far away. See, that's the future you paint. And that, to me, just seems so deflationary. And you know, we spoke mm-hmm. at the start about wage inflation as a sort of existential threat and then so many industries where this future looks like robots and automation, Mm. um, which has the potential to have such a deflationary effect on wages,
1: what arm wrestle do you think is going to win? In the next 10 years, I think it's the wages. Yeah. I think it's going to be things like the universal wage that comes in. I think it's going to be... Modern monetary theory, all that sort of... I think that the, that you've got every single major central bank yeah. on the planet is trying to create inflation yeah. because the only mathematical way to get out of the current problem with a huge amount of 250 trillion US dollars yeah. of debt out there is to inflate it away. Yeah. So you've got a lot of unbelievably bright minds trying to create inflation. You've got a, the the entire left Wing, for various reasons, that wants to reallocate wealth. Yeah, I'm not. I have no issue with that at all. I think it's actually a good thing to have a universal wage. Um, from my, side, but you know, I'm not going to talk politics. Um, now
0: we can talk about uh, whatever you
1: want. I'm, uh, you know, from my side, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, fiscally probably uh, the most right person you're ever going to see. Socially, the most left person you're going to ever see.
0: Well, monetary, modern monetary theory. Mm. I mean, I'm very new to investing game. That just seems terrifying to me the idea of printing money and basically handing it out Mm. and what that does to your fiat currency do you want to explain to the viewers or listeners because you do it more eloquently than me what it is and what your what your view is on it and if it's coming
1: i am uh, absolutely unequivocally certain that we're going to see inflation come Um, i cannot tell you when i think that that we will see a reallocation of wealth yeah and that's going to be inflationary. Already, when I travel the world, and we've got investments in all sorts of, of emerging markets, I can't find an emerging market on the planet where there isn't substantial wage inflation. Now, I, I'm a person in law of big numbers. Yeah, we've got 7.1 billion people across Africa, Asia developing Europe, Latin America, who are all seeing their wages go up. Not as good as Western world wages, but they're going up. So when the fellow or lady in Tanzania, in Africa, goes from a dollar and a quarter a day to $1.50, they still spend the 25 cents. Maybe they buy a little luxury, but it's the law of big numbers as you have 7.1 billion of them out there buying that little luxury, that creates demand. Where I'm seeing deflation is in the white collar workers, where doctors are slowly being replaced by AI and will be replaced in many roles in terms of surgery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what will happen, we'll have more efficient Better space, better hospitals, better food. Well, going to, I suspect, have a point, period of time where people have more hand time on their hands. But we are going to see that adjustment. I believe politically we're going to see that translation of, of minimum wage, whatever you're going to call it. Yeah. And in the service industries, which a lot of, of what people will end up doing, people are going to want to get paid, which is totally fair. And so if you're...
0: Um if the US is going to create inflation to reduce the real cost of their, their debt, which appears to be the only real option they have longer term, uh, the implication that has on countries holding US treasuries um, and the US dollar as a reserve currency of the world, um, how does that sit you? And do you, th- do you see the US currency being the reserve currency of the world in 30 years' time?
1: I think that... Um US currency will have a place to play. Yeah. It's a very large economy. Yeah. It's not gonna go down the tubes. I think it'll it'll do okay ish. We're very late in the cycle in yeah. the US. Very late. But I think we'll muddle through a little bit longer. I think we might then see a recession, but it'll come back. Now, the flip side of that is when you look at China. And its bite of the world economy is going to get more and more important. It wants its currency, as you can see by almost everything that the Chinese government is doing, to be a reserve currency, too. Yeah. Funnily enough, the Russians would like that, too. And Russians, who have no debt, when you look at it, the country has no debt. You can't make that up. So when people tell me it's a really risky place, it's like, hmm... Yeah, they have no debt. They sort of work. The rule of law is going to be questionable. I've seen some pretty amazing things in Australia and the US yeah. in terms of rule of law and, and ignoring it. So, uh, They're buying a huge amount of gold as mm, well, Russians and the that's Chinese. It's a great way to make your currency a uh, reserve currency. is back it by stuff.
0: Yeah. So you, do you have any gold personally?
1: Uh, no, I've got a little bit of gold miners. Yeah. But... I tend to like things that give me a cash yield. Yeah. And most of the assets I'm invested in give me cash flow. Yeah. So free cash flow is king. Yeah. And if I can buy things that throw off good free cash flow at the bottom of the cycle, that pay me to wait, and I get any inflation at all, I do absurdly well. Yeah. And remember, wealth is relative. Yes. So if I've got an asset that stays exactly the same or goes up and equities go down a lot or bonds go down a lot or commercial real estate goes down, wealth is relative. Well, let's say how do you cope with being
0: that potential to be early and have missed out on so many really good commercial opportunities? Um, What does it feel like when you're waiting for for something that you can see is going to happen? How does that process
1: play out? I tend to be pretty happy. Uh, Yeah. And during the dot-com boom, um, I was running a reasonably big equity business. And and pretty much everybody was telling me I was missing it. I didn't understand it. I was a dinosaur. And it was a case of I just couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't make sense of the valuations. And so at the point in time where people were buying things on clicks, I was buying things at three and four times free cash flow that weren't going away. I bought a huge chunk of a company called um, Schindler. Who has makes uh, lifts on the basis that well you're not going to make e lifts you still have to go up and yeah. down if I can buy that on three and a half times free cash oh by the way they're sitting on a pile of cash on the balance sheet mm. that makes sense yeah so from my side when I look at things uh, it's risk reward uh, and I'll tell you a little story I heard earlier on today um, which I think encapsulates it and I'm going to take you back to Switzerland and. In Switzerland, there's a little town and there's a lake in front of the little town. And in the winter, the lake freezes. And one of the people in the town goes, I'm going to start an ice skate rental company. Because it freezes and you can do beautiful skating, and I've skated on the lake. It's great and it's beautiful. It's a lovely experience. And the guy does it and puts out a sign, and no one comes. So he asks some of the passers by, you know. Why aren't you renting? Oh, well, it might be dangerous. You might fall through the ice and drown. And he thinks about it a bit. And he goes, well, I've done it before. And you know what I'm gonna do? My brother's pretty famous. He's mayor of the town. I'm gonna call him up and ask him to come down. And he likes ice skating. and Do a couple of tours around the lake and cut some figure eights and things like that. So my brother says, okay, fine. Sure, comes down and does it. And everybody looks and says, oh, somebody's doing it. Oh, and he's pretty famous. Huh, it must be okay. And the next weekend, 10 people came out and rented ice skates. They had a great time. The weekend after, 20, then 30, then 40. Then soon, the entire town was out in the lake. And people heard about this, and people came from other towns. And everybody's walking around out there saying it's great and isn't great, and it must be safe because everybody else is doing it. And one day, when there was about a thousand people in the lake, the ice broke because it was too much weight, but everybody was doing it so it must be safe so where's your risk when everybody's already doing it yeah or when nobody's doing it and it's underperformed when something's I get laughed at for doing agriculture literally and people think I'm crazy but that's fine because I 'm being paid to wait and If I look around the world and say equity markets have only been this expensive three times since we've had equity markets, Mm Hmm. Hmm. interest rates are at a level that, as Niall Ferguson said, hasn't been seen in the 5,000 years of economic history we have. Now, they can go a little bit further. Every single time in my career, I've heard, this is a new norm. Dot-com was a new norm. Mm. Nothing was there. It was always going to be clicks, and it was always going to go up. Every time I've heard that, guess what? Reality's come back. Now, I can't tell you what will change our interest rate environment. can't tell you when. I can tell you. When I look at all the metrics, and I look at the debt issuance right now, and the quality of the bonds that are being issued, we've got the highest issuance of covenant-like bonds as a percentage of the market ever. We've got the most amount of debt ever. All we need is a tiny little nudge up in rates, and a lot of things start folding, and it becomes a vicious cycle as opposed to a virtuous cycle. So from my side, I'm happy to be the odd one out and build my little things and you know, feed people and, you know, in the end, we believe we're creating great good. You know, we're working with people to get them livelihood, get them food, get them, uh, you know, for the, the farmers we're working with, to help them actually run their businesses when they would have been run out of business by the bigger institutions that would crowd them out of the market so we're giving them that ability and then for our investors that does really well for them mm. you know for us our first dividend was 2.3 the next one was 2.4 the next one was 2.5 the next one was 2.6 we've just paid 2.7 we've said probably 2.8 you know that's public yeah. we've said the NAFTA we we're expecting to continue you know, for the grandmas and grandpas that need that income every six months yeah does it help to be disagreeable when you're Hopefully a, I'm not disagreeable.
0: No, no. Well, well, you might be. I'm highly disagreeable. When you look for a portfolio manager or a fund manager, mm. you know, it's the Jim Grant saying the key to investing is have people agree with you later. A That's a great time, comment. A lot of the time you have to be the other side of the fence to the mob that are on the ice skating rink. Does it help if you've got a disagreeable personality underlying uh, when
1: you're an investor? I sincerely hope that uh, we are not, I am not, and none of my team is disagreeable. Um, we have one passage on this planet. So I'm uh, fixated on uh, trying to leave it a better place. Don't want to, Once I'm gone, I, don't, I want my friends to have a really good party and then yeah. promptly forget me. The flip side of that is, is when I go at the last minute, I want to think that I've done some good things, helped people. And help create things that weren't there before. Um, and whether it's doing deliberate good by yeah. making sure kids get to school, in, as one of our projects in India does, or making sure that farms work in Africa so that there's food on that continent, yeah. or working with smaller and mid sized farmers here who wouldn't have access to a balance sheet to help them survive. That, when I pass some point in time, hopefully in the very distant future. Um, <laughs> I want to be able to just reflect on that in that last couple of seconds, saying, okay, you're an okay egg. Yeah. So I would hope that we're known as being agreeable. Yeah. I would hope that we're known as uh, uh, being compassionate, kind. I, I, if you ask any of my staff... They're all that, the things I was
0: very skinny on my personality test. So <laughs> I'm, a bit,
1: I'm a bit worried. Go on. If you ask any of my staff about the culture in the firm... yeah they'll say it's us, ours, we. Us, ours, we. I repeat myself, us, ours, we. Team, not I, me, mine. Second bit, clients come first. The people who trust us with their money come first. My staff comes second, and gosh, we do very well as a company out of that. Yeah, Because if my clients are happy, they come back. If my staff are happy, they stay and they make my clients happy, and the company does well out of that. From our side, try very—we try very hard to, to to be good community citizens, but to have a uh, an ethos that looks after all stakeholders. Now we screw things up. We're we're not perfect, and nor will we be perfect for all time. We, there's, no matter what happens, we will screw something up. And we will try and look ourselves in the mirror when we screw something up, say, that went wrong. Let's figure out what went wrong with it. We've had some unbelievably good investments and some real turkeys. The important thing is to learn from the turkeys. Try not to or, or, or do it again. Figure out why it happened. If anything, spend more time looking at your failures, because mm. maybe the successes were all luck
0: on that note thanks for uh, thanks for joining really appreciate your time it thanks again to Ed for giving me so much of his time today and educating me on how he views the market some of the key takeaways with the common sense approach Ed uses when thinking about his investment portfolio the way he views value and risk plus his simple story about people ice skating on a lake is food for thought for any current day investor investing in the most popular stock of the day Next week on the show, we speak to Rob Frost from OC Funds Management. Once again, I'd like to thank the support given to us for this podcast by Think Markets. If you want more information, head to thinkmarkets.com or download their Think Trader app if you're looking to trade in currencies, commodities, indices, stocks, or CFDs. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review.